Hello, I'm Gary and this is episode 61 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be talking to battery electrochemist and EV advocate, Dr Ewan McTurk. Before we start, I wanted to let you know that I've started a Patreon to help support the channel. Go to patreon.com slash evmusings to see the different tiers that you can subscribe to. Obviously, all of this, the podcast, etc. is completely free and there's no obligation to contribute anything to keep it going. But creating the podcast, the newsletter, the Redux podcast and transcriptions, etc. is time consuming and it does have some cost overhead. In an ideal world, the cost will be covered by the patrons who would also receive little bonuses for their efforts in the form of the different Patreon tiers. So, as I say, head over to patreon.com slash evmusings and see what's on offer there. And if you feel that way inclined, sign up with a regular donation to keep things going. Thank you. Our main topic today is a discussion with Dr Ewan McTurk. Dr Ewan McTurk is an electric vehicle battery electrochemist who has been driving EVs since 2009. He completed his PhD at the University of Oxford where he worked on novel next generation lithium battery chemistries and the modification of commercial lithium ion cells to add new sensors that allowed the real performance limits of the cell to be truly understood. He continued the latter work at WMG, University of Warwick, and then built up a state-of-the-art battery test facility in Edinburgh before starting his own EV and battery consultancy. Ewan's also the creator of the YouTube series Plug Life Television, which explains complex battery tech in a way that anyone can understand and demonstrates how entire countries can electrify their transport. Obviously, with a CV like that, the first thing I wanted to ask him is, what's his EV story and how did he get into the plug life? I didn't choose the plug life. The plug life chose me. Uh, I was an undergrad at the University of Dundee doing an applied physics degree called Renewable Energy. And I was going into my honours year and trying to decide what I wanted to do for my, my project. And lo and behold, in 1999, Peugeot 106 Electric pulls up right next to me. And it was the, the person who would become my project supervisor um, was driving it. So the university had just obtained this very rare uh, old EV, um, which had NICAD batteries. It predated any modern charging infrastructure. So it was uh, a Marshall paddle style charger, which was quite mechanical and, and overcomplicated versus type two that we have today. But I was I was instantly fascinated by this this car. And I basically pestered the department every single day until they let me do my project on it. And that's what I did. Uh, so I, I did some characterization work on the vehicle um, as a kind of benchmark uh, for how we can improve the, the efficiency and improve the battery tech while simultaneously doing some research into lithium air, which was a, and still is a, a novel, not yet commercialized next gen battery technology arguably has more in common with a fuel cell than a lithium ion battery but uh, that was kind of all the rage at the time so i ended up doing my honors and master's project on that car and on that battery tech uh, and then jumped across the tay bridge to university of st andrews where i was doing more work on on battery tech and so on ended up buying that ev off of the university of dundee it's now on display at Dundee Museum of Transport. Fast forward a few years, um, and when I became a an electrochemist based in Edinburgh, building up my own battery lab, 
I upgraded to something a bit more contemporary. Um, I went for a, a 24 kilowatt hour Nissan Leaf, which despite its short range, was an incredibly versatile machine. I took that car from Edinburgh as far south as Leeds and as far north as the Isle of Skye. And then at the end of last year, I ended up treating myself at auction through uh, Jonathan Porterfield at EcoCars, who's very well known in, in the EV world uh, for his his knowledge and his his ability to get bums on seats in, in EVs. I ended up getting a, a secondhand Tesla Model S through him. So that was I was actually um to the month, a decade after first getting behind the wheel of that 106 electric that I took delivery of that Tesla. Um and that's my my EV story so far. Fantastic. Yeah, Jonathan, uh, we've had him a couple of times. Uh, I think I will call him a friend of the podcast. He's been on mm. a couple of times. So uh, yes, fully uh, fully aligned with you there. Bums on seats. That's an excellent way of, uh, of going forward. So tell me, Doctor, where do you stand in the big hydrogen debate? Hydrogen, I mean, it does have its uses. Uh, I do not believe, and in fact, well, I mean, believe makes it sound subjective. Practically speaking, it just doesn't make sense for passenger cars and for vans and so on. Um, when you're looking at uh, marine, for example, your know, long distance shipping, uh, perhaps long distance haulage, although we'll come back to that, um, and certainly uh, long distance um like air travel, that sort of idea, where you need to have a, an energy density that is greater than the leading battery technology of the day, then it arguably makes sense. It also is quite useful because the storage capacity of hydrogen is how big can you make the storage medium, uh, which could potentially be quite big if it's a pressurized tank. However, you typically require about two and a half times the amount of renewable electricity to produce hydrogen to move a given type of car uh, a given distance, say, you know, a, a, a Toyota Mirai to move that 100 miles. If you were to just put that renewable electricity straight into a battery, perhaps via the grid, factoring in the transmission losses and so on, you'd be able to move that same Mirai car 250 miles. So it's, it's a grossly inefficient way of doing things, hydrogen. you should It should very much be the renewable fuel of last resort, and there should be emphasis on it actually being renewable as well. The vast majority of hydrogen today still comes from fossil fuel sources. And there's talk about blue hydrogen, which is where you have the hydrogen coming from fossil fuel sources, but then you're doing carbon capture and storage to offset that. I would much rather, and it's, it's far more feasible um, to, to go about it the renewable way first and foremost. And that's where batteries do have the advantage because you can, you know, there's, there's far less efficiency losses. It's a very efficient thing to do to go via battery tech. And um, let's not forget as well that uh, fuel cell vehicles also require batteries of some description because fuel cells do not like being ramped up and down. Uh, they, they need the batteries to take care of the, the peak loads and also to do regenerative braking and so on. So that's my take on it, but that's because I've run the numbers on it. Um, I am on record as advocating hydrogen for certain uses, such as long distance rail travel, where it is not economically feasible to electrify the line. Um, and in fact, there's a, an episode of, of Plug Life Television, the, the Plug Life Manifesto on rail travel, where I do this. But then I state that uh, actually we should be continuously reviewing the latest battery tech or other energy storage technologies that come along and looking for the most efficient way to use every last electron of renewable energy that we have and reviewing whether hydrogen is still the only option for that route. And then eventually 
you know, when battery tech or whatever else comes along next surpasses that, put that technology in because it's more efficient. What about any, uh, hydrogen for energy storage so that you can, you know, you make that the hydrogen when we've got uh, good amounts of renewable energy and then you bring it back and convert that back into electricity at the point, say, during, um, you know, peak load balancing? Yeah, again, that's a good option. Um, and that's something that I believe is done quite a lot in Orkney, who've been leading the way on the hydrogen economy. Uh, they've The reason they've done that is because they have so much renewable energy that they cannot use it all on site. The grid connection to the mainland is redlining. So you know, it's, it's at capacity. They can't export more to the mainland. They have loads of electric vehicles, ninety at least 90% of which, by the way, are directly the result of Jonathan Porterfield, which is a phenomenal achievement for eco cars. But even they can't absorb all of that renewable energy. So that's where they've, they've gone through the hierarchical process of, can we export it? Can we use it on site? Can we stuff it in batteries? Well, we've done all of this and we've still got excess renewables. So rather than you know shutting the, the wind, wind turbines down, uh, to stop the grid from being overloaded, let's yeah use it to to uh, you know electrolyze water to produce hydrogen, and then we can store that for later. Yes, that makes sense because they've gone through the pyramid of efficiency, and hydrogen should be towards the bottom of that because there are great efficiency losses in comparison to other techniques. Uh, but once you've exhausted all other options, it definitely makes sense to have hydrogen for you know to, to produce hydrogen using excess renewables because you might as well do something with it that is constructive um that said there are other other storage technologies which should be investigated as well um, and the efficiencies of of these technologies should be as i said used in in order of efficiency so you've got batteries but the the overall capacity isn't as great on a grid scale as we would perhaps like you've got the likes of gravitricity which is an interesting company that uh, suspends big heavy weights down old mine shafts, and then that's on a motor. So to store that energy, you winch the weight up the mine shaft to get that energy back, you drop the weight, and that powers the generator, which produces electricity. So that's another option. You've also got compressed air, which I believe is being trialled in Manchester at the moment. Um, and then let's not forget pumped hydro, particularly in Scotland and, of course, in, in Wales as well. If we had something like 10 Denorwig-style pumped hydro power stations, the UK would have enough energy storage for its, its current demand. Um, it's just a case of finding geographical areas that are suitable for that. And of course, there is a, a certain amount of expense involved in that, but it's such a long-lasting piece of infrastructure that it's absolutely worth the investment. And the efficiency of that, whilst, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, less than batteries, is about 75% efficiency all, um, all in, if I recall correctly. But that's still pretty good, especially versus hydrogen, which is down towards... Uh, the the sort of forty to thirty percent efficiency overall. Uh, once you you factor in the production of the hydrogen, uh, the storage, your compression storage, and then uh, the the running it through a fuel cell. But yeah, obviously hydrogen. If there's no other options available that have a, a greater efficiency, then should be advocated rather than just wasting an opportunity to do something with renewable energy. So the question that sort of comes out of my mind um, following that is. Well, sort of tangentially, why is Scotland so far ahead of the rest of the UK when it comes to things like EVs and renewables? 
I think quite a lot of that comes down to who you vote for, really. And um, genuinely, the Scottish Parliament has gen- has been far more supportive of these sort of incentives, particularly over the past 10 to 15 years. We've seen consistently more supportive policies towards renewable energy, towards electric vehicles, um, you know, that, that kind of idea that we've seen from, from Westminster. Uh, that is the the genuine genuine answer to that. A good example is that um, whilst Westminster appears to be allergic to onshore wind turbines, or at least was until recently, there was an effective ban or at least severe restriction on new onshore wind farms being built. Scotland was still very much open for business. And um, whilst there was some opposition from NIMBYs, uh, you know, the government could see through that and went, you're getting it anyway. And believe it or not, uh, funnily enough, once it's built and once people start to gain from that renewable energy, including like a little cash pot for the community, which generally happens with, with wind farm developments, um, those opposition, you know, that opposition goes away. Um, and if anyone is, is still reluctant to have a wind farm near them, I'd strongly recommend that you go and visit Whiteley Wind Farm near Glasgow, which is, I think is still the biggest onshore wind farm in the UK. Uh, and that has God knows how many miles of, of dirt tracks running between the wind turbines, which are perfect for uh, dog walking, mountain biking, all of that sort of thing. And you can barely hear the wind turbines. You know, you could be standing 100 metres uh, downwind of one and it's it's nowhere near as 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 massive us or whoosh and it's nowhere near as deep a whoosh as as some of these uh fear mongers will, will have you say um but anyway so that's that's looking at the renewable energy side of it we've always been very supportive of that we've always been very environmentally aware of our need to to get rid of coal power so we shut down long gannett power station in 2016 haven't burned a, a single bit of coal since then um and we've been rapidly uh, boosting the amount of renewables on the grid. We're up to almost three quarters of our electricity over the course of a year coming from renewable sources, predominantly wind. But then on the electric vehicle front, uh, there were numerous local authorities that were proactive from that uh, on, on electric vehicles from the outset, not least Dundee City Council. I was in Dundee at the time when they started their massive uh, electrification project. I'm not going to take any credit though, but <laughs> I was I was the trendsetter with, with my, my little vintage electromobile. But the council very quickly uh, racked up over 100 electric vehicles within its fleet. Simultaneously, a very forward-thinking taxi company called 2030-20 Taxis, uh, which is well was run by the late Dave Young. Uh, Dave went to pick up his grandkids from school in his Ford Mustang and his kids said, you know, Grandpa, we don't want to get in that car because you're killing the planet. And that made him think. Uh, and I remember him telling us this at a, at a conference once. So he, he didn't even bother with a PowerPoint or anything. It was just, you know, looking you square in the eye and telling you the full story. It was absolutely captivating because what he did at that point was he, he got in various different makes and models of earlier electric vehicle, including the Renault Fluence. Remember that? Battery swapping, whatever happened to Ooh, that? Oh, yeah. So he, he tried some fluences. He tried the BYD E6, which there's still a handful of them in London. Uh, but he they, they were kind of like a, a Tesco value Tesla in terms of the range that they had available. You know, there were much larger range vehicles, but the build quality wasn't quite there. Anyway, he tried a whole bunch of these and it was the 24 kilowatt hour Nissan Leaf that won out. And before you know it, he has Dundee's first of its, its well-known charging hubs, but it's the one that's kind of been forgotten. And it's at 2030, uh, 20 Taxi's headquarters. There's five or six rapid chargers, which at the time was the, the most anywhere in Scotland, certainly in, in possibly the UK. Um, 
installed on the same premises. Uh, and they are now, well, I mean, all the other taxi companies have followed suit. I think they're up to 130 electric taxi and private hire cars in Dundee, which is over a fifth of their population of taxis. So, you know, some of it came from businesses, some of it came from local authorities. And it wasn't too long before, um, you know, the, the Scottish government was injecting funding through uh, Transport Scotland, through Energy Saving Trust Scotland to support the rollout of um electric vehicles for local authority fleets uh, before they were introducing the £35,000 six-year interest-free loan for anyone looking to buy an electric car, um, before they were adding an additional uh, domestic charge point grant through Energy Saving Trust Scotland. So in addition to the OLEV grant of up to £500, in Scotland you get the Energy Saving Trust Scotland funding of up to £300, and those two can be used in tandem. So there was a period of time when that grant was even greater, actually, and most people were getting their charge points installed for free. Um, wow. And that really, just the the exponential increase in in, in um, electric vehicle uptake as a result of that has been impressive. And let's not forget as well that Transport Scotland very early on stated their aim of having a rapid charger at least every 50 miles on every trunk road all the way up to Thurso on the north coast of Scotland. And indeed, you can do the North Coast 500 in a short range EV because the charging infrastructure is is available. Um, and that is continuing to grow, not least with the Electric A9 project, which again is another Scottish government-led uh, project where they are building charging hubs all the way along the A9, which is Scotland's longest road, runs from Edinburgh through Stirling, Perth, Inverness, all the way up to Thurso. And uh, there's some pretty enviable charging infrastructure, not least the new hub that they've installed at Falkirk, which has about five rapid chargers and a bunch of Type 2 posts, solar canopies. They've got the works. Um, and there's just so many projects going on right now to boost charging infrastructure in cities like, for example, Stirling is the one to keep an eye on. Let's put it this way, fourth side park and ride in Stirling. They're building four new rapid chargers next to the existing one, but the council haven't even bothered doing a press release about that because they're too busy building Castleview Park and Ride, which has something like 50 charge points going in and <laughs> solar canopies. That's the one they're bothering to do the press release about. That's, that's amazing, really, when you think about it. And then you compare that with what, what's happening in the majority of the councils in England. And I mean, you basically got Milton Keynes and Nottingham, which I think are the two who are taking a lead on this. And everybody mm -hmm. else is kind of, eh, you know, we'll take a step back. We'll let somebody else do the work and we'll see what happens afterwards. It's it's chalk and cheese, really, isn't it? It is. And it is frustrating in that regard. Um, we're, I mean, we're actually not immune to that in Scotland. So I would say that, you know, the kind of top three local authorities at the moment are Dundee, obviously. Have a look at the fully charged episode of what Dundee's done, if you've not seen it already. East Lothian, which uh, is completely the opposite, is a very rural kind of shirey sort of place to the east of Edinburgh. And uh, they've actually been busy installing um, charging infrastructure in every town, village and hamlet within East Lothian, including um, Transport Scotland's uh, or sorry, well, uh, you know, Charge Place Scotland, the Charge Place Scotland Network's first 150 kilowatt rapid chargers, ultra well, high power chargers, um, which are designed for vehicles that are towing. You can access it kind of past either side like a petrol pump. Um, so they've actually been putting in like leading infrastructure like this. And then obviously I mentioned Stirling, but right next to East Lothian, 
Edinburgh Council, oh my goodness me, it's absolutely abysmal. The the amount of charging infrastructure there is negligible in comparison to the rapidly growing number of electric vehicles, including LEVC taxis, which are becoming very popular in Edinburgh right now. But the council have just taken so long to get anywhere with boosting their charging infrastructure. They have an infrastructure plan that they've been talking about for a couple of years, and it does look promising, but the council seems to love reinventing itself. So they've they've kind of played musical chairs with the civil servants and it's taken so long to try and get any progress. And then the worst bit as well is that the private network operators, the likes of your Instavolts, your Enginis, your Polars and so on, they've been nibbling away at the outside of Edinburgh, but they've found it surprisingly difficult to find willing site hosts in the centre of Edinburgh for reasons unknown. Like most other cities like Glasgow, for example, there's loads of Instavolt chargers. Um, it's as if even although the the council in Glasgow is is putting infrastructure in, um, you know these these private businesses have been like, yeah, we we could host that, sure, yeah, if you're going to give us the infrastructure. Edinburgh, it's as if the site hosts are going, well, the council's not doing it, so I'm not going to do it. It seems like a risk for me, and that has been immensely frustrating. So we do. We do have that situation in Scotland in one or two places. It's a shame that one of those is the capital city. But yeah, I, I totally get what you mean because um, there are some severe laggards in, in England. And then, of course, the less said about the centre of Wales, the better. Uh, I'm, I'm aware that uh, Welsh EV drivers are crying out for more infrastructure. And again, it's just been such a struggle to get even one or two rapid chargers on major trunk roads um, to allow. <laughs> I mean, at the moment, we've got this stupid situation where some EV drivers have to drive into England to rapid charge to go back into Wales again, just because the infrastructure is not there. But That's just it, ridiculous. It is, it is. But you know, in fairness, I believe that Polar has made some progress in that regard. I've seen a couple of Engini rapid chargers going in too. And it's, it's surely only a matter of time. I believe that the Welsh government is is doing a sort of similar to Charge Place Scotland uh, network that's, that's currently in very early stages of, of implementation. But no, definitely for, for local authorities that have not put in their own infrastructure, it is absolutely imperative that they open up to infrastructure providers who are prepared to provide them with the kit. Uh, There's there's, there's some companies that will do this for free and then they'll pay like ground rent and things like this. So the the local authority would benefit. The last thing they should be doing is actively preventing the likes of your Polars, your Instavolts, your Enginis and so on from installing infrastructure that is clearly wanted by local motorists. But this is a a, a difficult issue because... um, as a, you know, the civil servants within these local authorities hold the the power over um, installing uh, infrastructure in council car parks and on street. A couple of things on that. The first one is I will be chatting with um, a few representatives of a number of the charge companies. I've got a commitment from me and Johnson from Ingenie to come on and chat. So I'm definitely going to be talking to him about situations like, you know, why is the centre of Wales so uh, poorly served. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what sort of reply we get from uh, from some of those people uh, who are, you know, in charge of making those kinds of decisions. I mean, th- there will obviously be a reason. I'm just interested to see what it is. Um, and moving very quickly on, uh, your channel, your Plug Life Television channel, is very, very bullish on Electrine everything. Do you really think it's possible? 
Well, having run the numbers, I am actually more confident than I was before I, I started out. There was an element of blinkered optimism when I sat down to do a series called What Barriers, where mm-hmm. I, I propose how an entire nation could electrify its, its transport sector. Um, I've, I've picked Scotland and the wider UK as, as prime examples of that. And um, I actually did that uh, as a a presentation initially for the Edinburgh Electrical Society, which I knew was going to be a room full of old retired uh, electrical and electronic engineers who anyone who's been to uh, the likes of an IET or an IMEC-E conference knows that old retired engineers are always the biggest skeptics and they will just kind of lazily burp out cold coal fired cars it's never gonna work you know you're outside in a nissan leaf that you're just back from sky in you know you've driven it however like 250 miles oh it just doesn't work it's like well shoot i didn't know i'm still stuck in portree you know it, 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 that's the, the thing i was up against so i knew i had to make a point that convinced them and there was no fudging the figures whatsoever. I sat down and blissfully, <laughs> it actually became so obvious that this was already totally doable. And in in the case of uh, like the biggest argument that people are going to make is what happens when everyone comes home from work and plugs in at the same time. We don't all work nine to five. Mm. And, you know, there's everyone has staggered shift patterns. And on top of that, no one is realistically going to start charging their car at six or seven o'clock in the evening if they are financially incentivized to charge overnight on off-peak electricity. And people who've gone for the uh, Agile Octopus dynamic tariff, the first dynamic electricity tariff in the UK, mm-hmm. have been known to make money charging their car, uh, yep. particularly at the beginning of lockdown when there was such a low demand for electricity because people were moving around moving about less um but also there was a ton of wind it was a particularly blustery few months in some places so that you had so much excess renewable energy overnight and people were being paid up to 10 pence per kilowatt hour to charge their car i'm aware of at least one person who ended up having a charging party and inviting their neighbors socially distanced over to (laughs) to sling their granny cables 13 amp cables out the window and stuff overnight because they were making money off of them charging cars that's that's what's happening and people will you know, people vote with their wallet with these sort of things. People will easily gravitate towards, yeah, as long as I have X percent in the battery in the morning, you charge whenever you want and make it as cheap as possible for me. And that is exactly how this is going to play out. And in the Watt Barrier series, I show you the um, the amount of electricity that Grid was able to support at peak times through whatever means. Um, and I show you how that's you know the, the electricity production tapers off overnight due to low demand and if you fill that trough between you know heavier use times and um and overnight you have so many spare gigawatt hours of of electricity to play with and that's actually more than enough to to charge everyone's car overnight and of course with more and more renewables coming online that's only going to get easier, especially with uh, the likes of these massive offshore wind farms, um, with the the solar PV revolution that we're we're seeing, and also, uh, well, we'll see if the tidal barrage uh, at uh, Swansea or the the Severn tidal barrage ends up being built. But they look very promising with regards to steady, predictable renewable energy supply. Do you feel that it's possible to run? the whole world on renewables? That's a good question because not every country 
has the same renewable resource as the likes of the UK, um, mm-hmm. certainly as the likes of Scotland, where we're very blowy, very rainy, but we also do have a surprising amount of sun. So we've got a really good portfolio of renewables. And the UK has, let me get this right, something like 25% of either the wave or tidal capacity of all of Europe. Um it's a stupidly high amount. So we are, you know, we've, we've hit the jackpot as far as renewables go. That said, something that we don't have as much of is uh, geothermal. Uh, Italy has exploited geothermal energy um, since the you know, the early early twentieth century. I think they were running their electric train services off of it uh, back in the you know, the early twentieth century. Um, so that's something that has, has long been exploited there. Obviously, they have a ton of sunshine as well. Head mm-hmm. towards the Middle East, you know, you could, there's, there's so much potential for solar there as well. Combine that with storage, and you're you're laughing your way to the bank. There are very few countries that legitimately have a deficit of renewable resources, um, even places that, that don't seem like an ideal setup for one particular technology, you, you may well find that actually they are. So for example, when you're heading towards the, the Arctic Circle a bit, you might think, oh, solar power would be a terrible idea. And for half of the year, you'd be correct. But then you know they have very long summers and so on, combined with low temperatures, which actually improves the efficiency of solar panels because solar panels are electronics. Electronics like to be cool. That's when they run the most efficiently and that's when you get the most electricity from a solar panel. So that actually works out really well. On that note, Japan have capitalized on this by having floating solar panels on the top of lakes, which keeps them cool um, and uh, improves the efficiency, improves the yield. So yeah, it, it, it is doable. And especially if you have a uh, sort of continent-wide interconnect between different nations with really high voltage uh, interconnects for greater efficiency. And that way, if it's really windy or really sunny in one part of that continent, then the areas that are having a bit of a deficit at the time can benefit from that. And that's something that we're already seeing uh, in Europe. Um, Not only does the UK already have interconnects to France and to the Netherlands, but I believe that some are being built to Norway as we speak. Let's talk batteries. What's the one myth you wish could be exploded when it comes to batteries? And I hesitate to use the word exploded, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, oh, of course, yeah. Uh, well, for a start, it's surprisingly difficult to blow up a lithium-ion battery on that note. Um, trust me, <laughs> I have tried. <laughs> In fact, uh, a good example of that is, uh, you know, the, the Royal Society Christmas lectures. So mm-hmm. it fell to... My old work, actually, WMG, University of Warwick, uh, Warwick Manufacturing Group, a huge department that does a heck of a lot of predominantly automotive research, including battery tech and electric motors for electric vehicles. And the the year that I was there, well, one of the years I was there, they had to do a piece on a controlled explosion of a lithium-ion battery to show you what happens when it goes wrong. So they did a few trial runs and they, you know, they took this cell, drilled straight through it, and nothing happened. They were like, oh, okay, that's disappointing. We'll make another one and we'll charge it up fully this time. And they drilled straight through it and it didn't blow up. They're like, What's, what are we going to have to do? So I, th- I think they ended up overcharging it massively, like really abusing it. I think they probably heated it up as well. And then it caught fire. Uh, but yeah, the, it was a bit of a damp squib the first couple of uh, trials. Um, so it is a surprisingly difficult thing to do. You have to really wreck it to you know to get that sort of... Um, 
reaction from a lithium ion cell. But I would say probably the the myths that need to be exploded are with regards to the raw materials, um, both in terms of uh, supply and in terms of, of ethics. So for a start, there are no rare earth metals in a lithium ion battery. If you look at a periodic table at the 17 rare earth metals, and then you juxtapose that with the lithium, copper, cobalt, uh, aluminium, that kind of idea that you you get in a typical lithium-ion cell, or even an atypical lithium-ion cell. There is absolutely zero overlap whatsoever. And those materials are surprisingly abundant. They're also very recyclable, uh, particularly copper and cobalt. And in fact, the initial recycling techniques on lithium-ion cells were not designed to recover the lithium. They were designed to recover the copper and the cobalt because they were more commercially valuable. Lithium is incredibly abundant. There's something like 14 million tons of it on land, which is fair enough, but there's also about 230 billion tons or something like that in the oceans. Uh, so you can extract it from seawater if you if you want. And in fact, the biggest lithium reserves in the world, if you look at uh, Salar de Uyuni in Bolivia, that once upon a time was a sea and it's now a dried up you know, salt lake uh, and mm-hmm. that has lithium rich brines in it. And in fact, there are lithium rich brines in Cornwall, uh, which are, uh, there's a couple of companies that are looking to extract that for the UK's own burgeoning battery industry. So continuity of supply um, is, is not an issue. And in terms of the ethics front with cobalt, yes, there is some artisanal mining of cobalt from Democratic Republic of Congo. And yes, Democratic Republic of Congo is the biggest supplier of cobalt globally. However, a couple of key points there. One, it's a very small uh, minority of, of mines from DRC that do the artisanal mining with child labor and so on. And automotive suppliers, you know, automotive battery manufacturers, because they've uniquely been under this scrutiny, no one scrutinized, well, very few people scrutinized, um, you know, jet engine manufacturers, cobalt's used in that, for example. Uh, no one scrutinized um, your, your electronics and smartphone manufacturers, as far as I'm aware, despite the fact that there's about 10 times as much cobalt by percent in a smartphone battery than there is in the leading EV battery. And that amount in an EV battery continues to decline. Uh, Tesla are going cobalt-free in in some of their Chinese Model 3s, for example. But as well as that, Big Oil uses cobalt to help to refine petrol, and they've never really come under that scrutiny. So it's interesting that just EVs seem to have been put under the spotlight. And as a result, uh, the supply chains have been tightened up, and uh, these companies are are, are getting their reduced cobalt supply because they need less of it now um, from alternative sources or from ethical sources within DRC. But it is worth noting there is one company, uh, funnily enough, a smartphone company called Fairphone, that rather than running away from artisanal mines, is running headfirst towards it and making sure that the ethics are there, that it is just adults doing mining, that the working conditions are safe, um, that there is a living wage being paid. Fairphone, incidentally, I strongly recommend because their phones are all made from ethical materials or recycled materials and are recyclable, modular, easy for someone to repair. You can take them apart in a couple of minutes and swap modules out. That is exactly what we need in the automotive industry too, incidentally. We, we need a, a move towards being able to service um 
you know vehicles uh, in a much more simple manner uh, not that there's much that goes wrong with an ev to be fair but fairphone have been looking at this supply chain issue and are single-handedly improving things in drc although that said such as the the nature of um, chemistries going towards cobalt free it could well be that that'll be a non-issue in the not too distant future so that's the myths i would like to bust on on battery tech and that moves me very nicely onto my next question. We hear lots and lots of news articles about the new battery tech that's coming, the new chemistries that are coming. Um, and Robert Llewellyn was talking about carbon batteries on a recent podcast. Mm. And in my opinion, this raises people's hopes, possibly unnecessarily. So three sort of related questions. What upcoming battery tech changes will happen? What upcoming battery tech changes could happen? And what upcoming battery tech changes might happen. Okay, so what are happening at the moment? Um, we're seeing a gradual incremental increase in energy density of a conventional lithium-ion cell. Um, typically, I think it's about 10% per year. Um, but that said, you know, you look at the likes of a BMW i3, the battery capacity between the original version from 2013 and the 120 amp per hour version 2019, that's been doubled within the same physical space of battery mm-hmm. packs. So we've already seen big improvements being made. But in terms of the chemistry, ignoring improved packaging efficiencies and so on, um, the chemistry, you know, as I say, we will see a move towards more nickel, less cobalt, uh, higher energy densities, but they'll also need to be thermally managed pretty well to make sure that they'll survive uh, ultra-fast rapid charging. Um, but don't worry, automotive manufacturers will take care of that. Uh, we're also going to see an increase in the amount of silicon that is used in the anode, the negative electrode, which at the moment, the vast majority of it is graphite, um, which is good for safety reasons, but it's not very energy dense. You need six carbon atoms for every lithium ion that is, is housed in it. So silicon allows you to store more lithium in a smaller space. The problem is that it expands and contracts up to 25 times its original size during cycling, and that is obviously quite an issue. So at the moment, there's a tiny bit of silicon sprinkled in there, but not enough you know, to, to really revolutionize a lithium-ion cell's energy density. Um, but what we've seen recently is that people have been able to produce silicon anodes with a, a graphene wrap around them like a corset that holds that silicon tight so that it doesn't expand as much. And we'll start to see silicon anodes uh, starting to make severe, you know, more significant improvements to energy density of a conventional lithium-ion cell. We're also seeing a move towards uh, solid-state electrolytes. So instead of being a liquid that's soaking a polymer kind of plasticky separator that stops the two, you know, the positive and the negative electrodes from touching, which would obviously mean that they could internally short. Um, this is something that allow the separator allows lithium ions through, but the electrons have to go through the external circuit out of the battery, through the electric car's motor and back in the other side. And that's how you, know, you, you stop it from just discharging itself instantly. Um, but the solid electrolyte does away with that separator. It does away with the liquid electrolyte uh, because it's effectively two in one, ionically conductive, not electrically conductive. Um, and that uh, should improve energy density. It should also allow us to move away from using graphite anodes, negative electrodes, towards using pure lithium for maximum energy density, which at the moment can't be used for safety reasons because the lithium on charging back into the negative electrode 
doesn't plate evenly. Uh, it causes little, uh, it grows little sort of branches called dendrites, which will puncture the separator and internally short the cell. With solid electrolytes, they're far more resistant to that. Uh, so there's a lot of progress being made there. And then you would see, uh, again, a significant improvement in energy density, probably a doubling or, or trebling of energy density um, of, a, of a, an EV battery uh, once we go down that route. There have already been some fairly uh, rudimentary examples of that that are being used, for example, in drones. Um, but it'll be a little while yet before we see them in EVs. But that's that's one route that seems to be happening. Tesla's battery day is today. So it would be um, rude of me not to mention some of the, the sort of details that have been leaked. Um, it looks as if they're moving towards a much bigger cylindrical cell, uh, which on the face of it, it looks as if it would be an absolute nightmare when it comes to extracting heat from the core of that. And if you've got uh-huh. a buildup of heat, then you're going to degrade the thing faster. But it looks as if they're cap- uh, capitalizing on Maxwell technologies, Maxwell that they bought out a couple of years ago. Uh, they have a dry electrode coating technology, which uh, allegedly reduces costs and reduces internal resistance as well, which means less heat dissipated, which means that these bigger cells for greater, um, possibly greater packaging efficiency, but definitely lower um, production costs because you can produce you know, uh, larger cells on one production line rather than having loads of production lines for loads of smaller cells. Yeah, That's where it gets interesting. Um, plus, because you've only got the aluminium surrounding one big can versus what would have been half a dozen, say, smaller cans in its place, then you've got less non-active material, less filler material that's, that's necessary, uh, but it's just adding bulk. So that will improve the energy density even further. Um in terms of what might happen, uh, not the diamond self-charging battery that's been doing the rounds recently, uh, <laughs> that would be fine for ultra, ultra low power applications. Um, but we're talking like sensors for very specific little sensors. We're not talking powering entire electric vehicles. You'd need like a football field's worth of them to power a, a Nissan Leaf. Um, but, you know, that... Uh, I should stipulate I've not actually sat down and crunched the numbers on that, but it's definitely a big, big amount. It would be comical to try and do that. Um, and as I say, the power density, the, the 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 speed at which it can chuck electrons at the application is just too slow. The technology that I worked on uh, back in my, my earlier days, lithium air is still up in the air. Um, we've been looking at metal air batteries in general since the 1960s. In fact, Scottish aviation uh, based in Prestwick, they made the Scamp electric car. Uh, they the, the founder of them was looking at zinc air rechargeable batteries for the Scamp in an era when lead acid was really your only option. And unfortunately, the only commercially available zinc air cell today is the tiny wee ones that get used in hearing aids. So that's single use as well. There are numerous difficulties with metal air, not least the fact that they kind of asphyxiate themselves. Well, lithium lithium air definitely asphyxiates itself because um, the lithium peroxide, Li2O2, which is the discharge product, is insoluble within the electrolyte that's used. So it doesn't dissolve into the electrolyte. It just stays on the reaction site. Sometimes it drifts away, but more commonly, it stays on the reaction site and chokes the cell. Uh, plus they have... Uh, an issue with side reactions that go on that basically destroy itself within a few cycles. So they're not anywhere near commercial viability yet. But uh, interestingly, 
there was a visiting PhD student, Nori, who, who came over to our research group in St. Andrews back in the day. And he was doing some interesting work with lithium air because at the time, everyone was, was obsessed with removing moisture from the cells because although it's the oxygen that you require for the reaction, if you're running it in air, you're obviously going to get moisture in the air coming in as well. And they were worried mm. that this was causing some of the degradation, the side reactions. So you know, you would be bubbling oxygen through molecular sieves and things to try and remove all of that moisture. But what Nori did was he deliberately added some moisture. And we found that just like when you're drinking a whiskey, there's a bell curve. So you, you know, if there's no moisture, then you have a rubbish short-lived cell. If you have a little bit of moisture, it lasts a lot longer. If you add a bit too much moisture, then you kill the cell again. So there's a, an optimum point there. And that could potentially have reawoken interest in lithium air research, which had all been diverted towards solid state lithium many years prior. So yeah, that could be an interesting one for the not to, well, sorry, I mean, it would be mid to long-term future. Um, chances are the power density of lithium air would be quite low. So you would have that as a hybrid system with a more conventional lithium ion pack uh, so that it, you know, the lithium air would provide the base load, but then you would have the lithium ion doing the regenerative braking and peak acceleration. And another one that's worth pointing out actually uh, on, a, on a different topic is sodium ion, which is made with more abundant materials is about a 30% reduction in cost. There is also a reduction in energy density, but it's not too bad. And that means that entry-level electric vehicles, probably the likes of your Renault Twingo slash Zoe, um, could go sodium, uh, they could go towards sodium ion. Potentially, larger applications like buses could go towards sodium ion. And that is where you're looking at significantly reduced costs of buying uh, the battery tech for these vehicles combined with more ethical, sustainable, um, low-cost chemistry. And that's something that's in pretty advanced stages at the moment. There's a company called Ferradium that's working on it. And there's also a company called Ampipower up in Thurso that's doing... Uh, actually, yeah, their, their battery factory is one of the oldest in the UK. And you wouldn't expect it to be in Thurso, but there it is. And it's you know working on stuff like sodium ion. Um, so I've, I've got high hopes for that. Will we ever get a battery that charges in about five minutes? A reasonable size one. Again, that's a good one. The, the issue is going to be largely, I reckon, internal resistance. In fact, it is going to be internal resistance because if you remember back to your uh, GCSE physics or, or standard mm -hmm. grade physics, I'm showing my age now. It's not standard grade anymore, is it? Anyway, whatever it is, it's got. Um, yeah, so back in my day, son, it was standard grade. And yeah, so V equals IR. Uh, so resistance, you know, voltage over current. Mm -hmm. And that means that for a greater internal resistance, the over potential, which is, so if you have a cell that's resting, that's you know, been sitting there for a few hours, nothing's happened to it, then that's your open circuit voltage, your OCV. And if you're charging it, suddenly putting in a rapid charging current, the amount that the cell voltage jumps up if you subtract the OCV from that, that's the overpotential, the opposite for discharge. So um, yeah, that basically means that when you're rapid charging, your voltage jumps up quite considerably. And if you rapid charge it too quick, it's going to hit its maximum voltage. You don't want to exceed that maximum voltage because you do irreversible damage to the chemistry and mm -hmm. that makes the cell unsafe. 
So what you have to do is switch from constant current, CC, to constant voltage, CV. So you hold the cell at its maximum voltage and taper the charging current off to a predefined minimum, at which point you're like, yeah, sod it. That's what we're going to call a full cell. And that's what happens on a rapid charger. That's what happens on any charger, to be fair. But um, internal resistance obviously plays a huge role in that. And you can only charge the cell as quickly as it's prepared to um, you know, stay off of its maximum voltage because otherwise it's going to take ages to charge it. So that's, that's one consideration. There's also the heat that is evolved in the cell. Uh, the heat obviously will degrade that cell if it's not extracted quickly. There were some interesting studies recently that showed that you are you can actually allow a lithium-ion cell to get really hot during rapid charging as long as you then immediately extract the heat from it afterwards. Now, surface cooling alone is not ideal for that because you're only cooling the surface. If you have a cylindrical cell, we have found with our studies on Tesla-style Panasonic 18650 cells that even just after a 1C discharge, in other words, the current required to discharge the cell within one hour. So for a 3.2 amp per hour cell, it's a 3.2 amp current, 1C. Mm -hmm. Anywho, um, by the time you'd fully discharged it, the core temperature through these fancy instruments that we put into these cells was 5 degrees C higher than the surface temperature. And that thermal gradient from the core to the surface means there's going to be uneven wear, uneven degradation on the cell. You don't want that. So one way around that is tab cooling. This is something that's been pioneered by Imperial College London. And what they've done is they've realized that the tabs, the terminals on these cells are basically chunks of metal, which link onto the metal foil upon which the active electrode material, the graphite or the heavy metal oxide, is pasted. So that is one big continuous winding or several sheets of metal, depending on the configuration of the cell, that go straight to the heart of the cell. So you can extract heat via the terminals and you actually get a much longer lived, much healthier cell with less of a thermal gradient throughout its structure. So that's one way you can improve rapid charging times is to you'll be able to extract that heat really quickly, probably through the terminals. But um, the internal resistance of the material itself is going to be a key consideration. And that's going to require some new chemistries coming along, perhaps something like this dry electrode tech that Tesla are about to show us, well, hopefully show us in a few hours time. Very interesting. Let's talk charging infrastructure. Mm -hmm. It's a little uh, sort of a, a pet topic of mine. It's definitely a tale of two countries when we come to Scotland and uh, England slash Wales, and you've already touched on that earlier on. Uh, Northern Ireland, again, a completely different issue altogether. Oh, God, yeah. How do you see charging evolving long term? Are we going to go to hubs? Is it going to be charges in the existing petrol stations, more destination charges? What? How, how do you see it working? Well, I think the first thing to kind of touch on there is the, the format war, uh, CCS versus Charimo versus AC rapid charging. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe that the wrong format is winning. Uh, CCS is being foisted upon us despite the fact that it's not currently able to do vehicle-to-grid charging and despite the fact that the protocol is so loosely defined that you've seen the likes of the Jaguar I-PACE and even Teslas having compatibility issues with older charge points. Um, this is because unlike Chadmo that is rigorously defined, uh, CCS is kind of like they've given you the ingredients to make a cake but not the recipe. And that's why uh -huh. so many manufacturers who are new to EVs or new to CCS have messed up. 
Chatmo just works first time every time. Prime example, my Model S, I bought the CCS retrofit for it and it doesn't mm-hmm. work on some of the older ChargePlay Scotland charge points. Despite the fact that a BMW i3, which is equipped with CCS, you know, an i3 from 2013 works first time every time on the same charge point. It's not the charge point's fault. Uh, I ended up having to buy the Chadmo adapter just to be able to use the car out in the sticks faster. Um, so I believe that the the format war has, uh, I think that the, everyone's backing the wrong horse, unfortunately. But that's an issue that will resolve itself in in time to do with the compatibility issues. That'll be overcome. And certainly with the newer charging infrastructure, it's rare to see any compatibility issues there. In terms of how the infrastructure will evolve versus how it should evolve, that's a, a very different setup. But uh, I think it also depends on whether you're in densely populated cities or rural shires. It also depends on the willingness of a local authority to accommodate new infrastructure. I think we we could well see, and we should see, uh, a greater number of charging hubs, the likes of what Dundee has done on numerous occasions, Falkirk, Stirling, Kilmarnock. There's just a few more examples off the top of my head. Milton mm-hmm. Keynes. Um, you know, those hubs, it's a case of build it and they shall come. No one wants to go to one rapid charger because what if it's out of service? What if someone else is using it? What if there's a queue? That's yeah. inconvenient. Whereas if you go to mm-hmm. a hub where there's half a dozen of these things, yes, the grid connection cost is higher and that's going to be an issue, but you can balance it out with on-site grid storage, which you could also apply to be an energy trader. So you could you know, buy up cheap electricity and then sell it at peak times and you could help to pay for the costs of the charging hub that way. Um, you know, There's clever ways and means about it. So if you build these charging hubs, people will gravitate towards those in greater numbers, but there'll be far less time queuing because the you know the the stippling the, the the spacing between everyone arriving and departing just like at a petrol station um means that you'll just you'll just have to wait a couple of minutes tops if it's busy because you know someone's already on 90% or whatever it's time for them to disconnect so absolutely charging hubs make sense and i would say that as an absolute bare minimum we should be installing new charging infrastructure rapid chargers in pairs and if it's a network that also has destination charging, we should be installing at least one three-phase 22-kilowatt destination post next to them. Because particularly out in the sticks where you have a, a charging network that has a monopoly like ChargePlay Scotland, you know, out in the highlands and islands, there's very few non-ChargePlay Scotland units. If the rapid charging infrastructure, which is more complex, and therefore more prone to failure, if they are down for whatever reason, you can at least get a backup charge on the adjacent AC post. That's important. Plus, we'll hopefully see more electric vehicles that are equipped with 22 kilowatt onboard chargers. And the likes of the Jaguar I-Pace, which I believe until recently, possibly still today, only had a 7 kilowatt onboard charger as an option for a battery that's well above 70 kilowatt hours. They're missing a trick. Like my, well, you look at Zoe's, you know, they can, like the the earliest ones could take a full charge off of a destination charge point in the space of an hour. And a Model S, uh, an older one with dual onboard chargers, 22 kilowatt, never underestimate the convenience of that. I recently did Edinburgh to Oban uh, via the scenic route going through like Loch Gilphead and you know, basically snaking up and down, not taking the direct route. I didn't touch any rapid chargers along that route. I only used destination posts because I was sucking 22 kilowatts, which is about 70 miles an hour, whilst I was exploring the local area, which is what I was planning to do anyway. And... 
you know that that just shows the sheer convenience of that kind of infrastructure and that is cheap to install in comparison to a dc post so hopefully we'll see more 22 kilowatt onboard charge capability to make use of that but as for charging infrastructure motorway service stations absolutely the hubs the kind of grid serve style hubs or the the polar milton Keynes style hub that is a necessity um we cannot continue with one or two rapid chargers at motorway service stations some of which may not have chadmo uh, sorry may not have ccs that's yeah unacceptable in 2020 and whoever has a monopoly on motorway service stations who has that infrastructure i would i would uh, request that they tear up that monopoly for the sake of evs but uh, that's a separate conversation to have um with regards to urban charging Dundee's strategy has been to allow everyone to congregate at these charging hubs. I would also like to see provision of on-street charging in densely populated areas uh, where you can just plug in to a a seven kilowatt post. Uh, Maybe it's a pop-up one. Uh, I've seen the likes of, um, well, Connected Curb have some very discreet on-street furniture, uh, charging uh, charging infrastructure. Um, Then there's, uh, oh, darn, what's the name of the one that pops up again? You know the one I mean? Yeah, uh, Fully Charged did an episode about yeah. it, didn't they? That's um, so annoying. Uh, I like to, to name check the people who are leading this. But anyway, yeah, sorry, there's the one that pops up. Um, <laughs> Dundee are trialling them, incidentally. So as well as doing the hubs, they're looking into the pop-up infrastructure. Um, and then there's another company called Trojan Energy who have a, an interesting design. It, the charge point itself looks a bit like, you know, the little stainless steel LED flush lights you get on some pavements? Yes. Um, It's like that. And then you have something that looks like a jackhammer that fits into it. So that's clearly designed with residents in mind because no one else is going to carry that around in their boot. But um, when you consider the cost of a parking permit for on-street parking, when you consider how much it would have cost for you to install your own wall box at home, that's probably a fair price to pay to be guaranteed a, a charge on the most minimally intrusive piece of street furniture because it's completely flush, it's not a trip hazard, it's not getting in the way until you put this little slender jackhammer in. And that's going to be so close to the curb that the parked car that's there, no one's going to be walking that close to it anyway. Um, there's Yeah, there's quite a few interesting ideas in that regard. Will we see inductive charging? Perhaps at taxi ranks. I know there have been some promising trials in Nottingham, um, but that's going to require the standardization of the size of coils uh, on the on the ground and on the vehicle and i think that because you you lose so much efficiency if you have mismatched coils and if they're not perfectly aligned you know that's going to be a, a major efficiency loss that's you're better plugging in in that regard but with increasing levels of autonomous driving capability we could have a vehicle that parks itself perfectly over one of those induction coils and maybe if the induction coil on the vehicle has a certain amount of freedom to correct itself on on the X or the Y axis and to move itself to align itself perfectly, if the vehicle itself cannot park perfectly over the uh, the coil, then that could improve the efficiency as well. And that's something that we could see with niche vehicle operations like taxis. Will it go to private cars? Possibly, but uh, I, I think it's more likely to be taxis at the moment. Yeah, I tend to agree. Can can you retrofit the coils to an existing EV so that it can use induction charging, or does it have to be built in at the time of um, of construction? I've heard of some companies that are offering it as a retrofit. Um, I couldn't name them off the top of my head, but I'm aware that uh, there are some companies that do offer that. So um, yeah, 
obviously that would need to be designed for each vehicle. Uh, and that's going to require a certain amount of expense. But if it's done en masse, then that brings the cost down. Absolutely. Uh, right. Last question. Is there something sort of relatively quick and simple that the government or an NGO or an individual could be doing to have a maximum effect that they're not doing at the moment? And a typical example could be stopping fossil fuel car advertising. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that would be a, a prime example, uh, particularly SUV advertising. No one really needs an SUV um, well, unless you are out in the sticks, unless you are mm-hmm. genuinely doing off-roading. But there's, mm-hmm. there's too many Chelsea tractors. And the fact that it's it's only recently in the grand scheme of things become a desirable thing in the UK, that mindset absolutely needs to be reversed. There needs to be additional tax um, on that as a discouragement whilst EVs are, are giving greater incentives. I think... You know, in terms of what the government can do to improve uptake, look at the leading nation on this. Look at Norway. What have they done? You know, they've they've made toll road access free for electric vehicles. They've allowed access to bus lanes. They've allowed discounted ferry access. Um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of different incentives that I cover in episode six of, of Plug Life Television, and I can't quite remember off the top of my head. But I did sit down and calculated how much it would have cost to do our Norway road trip in a petrol rent-a-car versus Bjorn, the Kia Soul EV that we we took out into the sticks. And it was a substantial saving, despite the fact that electricity for charging was quite expensive in the grand scheme of things. But then again, so is petrol because it's you know, Norway is just an expensive country to be in, but it is still worked out so much cheaper. So we should absolutely be looking at leading policies from around the world. And to be honest, Norway is full of them. We should be taking a closer look at that, both with carrot incentives towards EV and stick incentives away from ICE. Oh, totally I, agree. I'll tell you what as well, we should be banning the well any mention of a so-called self-charging hybrid, uh, because that's simply, it's either, depending on how you look at it, not true, because it's, uh, it was ultimately coming from petrol, or it technically is true if you're talking about regenerative braking, but then again, a plug-in hybrid and an electric vehicle can quote-unquote self-charge in the same way. So yeah, it's, it's incredibly misleading. And unfortunately, whilst other nations have already banned that nomenclature, that deceptive phrase, uh, the ASA in the UK has not, and they need to take a serious look at that. Yeah, my uh, my view on that is it's technically accurate but it's also misleading in the same way as if I said to you, would you like to see a cherry colored cat? And you went, oh, yes, and expected a red cat. And I said, no, I'm going to show you a black cat because you also have black cherries. Mm. That's technically true, but it's misleading. Yeah, that's a fair way of looking at it, actually. Yeah. Uh, It's time for our one cool thing. Um, Dr. McTurk, do you have a cool thing for us? I certainly do. So, I mean, it's Tesla battery day today, so there's all of that to talk about. But the thing I want to talk about now is what is going to be available very shortly if you are lucky enough to, to live in Scotland. And this is an incentive that should be applied elsewhere in the UK and beyond. So, at the moment, Energy Saving Trust Scotland have the £35,000 six-year interest-free loan for brand new electric vehicles. But the Transport Secretary, Michael Matheson, said quite early on when he became Transport Secretary that he was worried that incentivising the purchase of new cars would make electric vehicles a quote-unquote middle-class pastime. And that was an entirely valid point because there are 
more economically disadvantaged areas of, of Scotland, there are people who need a car for their work uh, and their, their livelihoods, but they're on a shoestring budget. So what about people who can only afford secondhand vehicles? And Energy Saving Trust Scotland are about to unveil, are about to officially launch their five-year interest-free loan of up to £20,000 towards a second-hand electric vehicle. Now, I've gone to the liberty of doing some calculations on this uh, for that £20,000 loan and looking at typical second-hand retail prices. That translates into the likes of a Mark I Hyundai Ioniq, which is a fantastic machine, very efficient, for £330 a month. Mark I Kia Soul for £250 a month. Mark I BMW i3 for £220 a month. A 30 kilowatt hour Nissan Leaf for £200 a month. That's surprisingly capable for eating up motorway mileage and rapid charging quite quickly. The 24 kilowatt hour Nissan Leaf, like mine, £150 a month. Or the Peugeot Ion, which should not be underestimated because it's perfectly capable of doing cross-country journeys via rapid charging and is also a very uh, compact machine, so it's perfect for city living, that's £100 a month for an electric car. And EVs are so reliable that they'll just run and run. You know, you'll eventually need to change the tyres. You won't need to change the brake pads as much because you've got regenerative braking. You'll need to change the windscreen wipers. You know, that's the sort of thing. There's there's no timing belt. There's no clutch. There's no gearbox to deal with. Um, Basically, a service is kicking the tyres and saying, it's fine, there's very little that needs to be done. Um, A prime example is there was a Nissan Leaf taxi, 24 kilowatt hour Nissan Leaf taxi down in Cornwall that racked up 174,000 miles on its original battery before it was sold on to its new owner. And the only mechanical failure it had in that entire time was one ball bearing. So factor in savings on um, on vehicle excise duty, on so-called road tax, when it's not really road tax. But anyway, you know, that tax there, you know, you're easily over 100 quid a month or whatever for a typical petrol car. For EVs, it's zero. So you've, you've immediately got that saving. Then you've got the savings on servicing. You've got the ser- savings on maintenance. £100 a month for an electric car, no deposit, and you own the car at the end. Unlike leasing, you own the car at the end. Like This is a game changer. Absolutely. It's a, you're a mind reader because as you were talking, I was just saying, we need to talk about the um, the leaf down at, in CNC taxis in Cornwall. And lo and behold, <laughs> you brought that example up. Fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, but yes, um, I think anything that can be done by any government to uh, increase the uptake of vehicles, of electric vehicles, is going to be good. And obviously, unless you're reasonably well off or unless you're a, a company car buyer the chances are you're going to be buying a second-hand electric vehicle so something like the uh the loan for second-hand evs is just fantastic and of course jonathan porterfield is going to love something like that isn't he well yeah i mean actually this is one thing that's not clear yet uh so the, obviously there's the t's and c's have still to be released for this is this um, yeah, is this loan only going to be available through mainstream dealers or is it going to be available through smaller independents like Jonathan or is it going to be available as well to private sales? And I believe uh, that if we really want everyone to benefit from the green recovery from a transition to electric vehicles genuinely, whether it's a mainstream dealer, whether it's uh, you know your, your smaller independents or whether it's a private sale, the loan absolutely must be available for a secondhand vehicle purchased through any of those means. It cannot just be exclusively for the big dealers who are already you know, rolling about in money from new car sales. It absolutely needs to be available to everyone. Um, 
I would hope, given that Michael Matheson, the transport minister, has already seriously thought this through, like his earlier comments about we, we can't just make it for shiny new stuff for the middle classes, we need to make this available to everyone. He's clearly clued up, he's thought this through. The details have not been released yet, but I have, I have high hopes that Michael's got this one right. And I very much look forward to seeing everyone taking advantage of that, because I'm telling you now that the switchboard at Energy Saving Trust Scotland is going to be lighting up the minute that loan becomes available. Excellent. My cool thing, the Automobile Association, the AA, are rolling out an EV support service for UK businesses. It will provide a dedicated support package for several operators in the domestic workplace and public charge environments. And this is in addition to contact centre staff providing EV drivers with support at the end of the phone, as well as the potential for field-based technician options to maintain the country's growing EV infrastructure. So basically, the AA is getting behind EVs in a big way. Well done, AA. Now, come on, RAC. What are you doing about it? We want some movement on that part. Uh, Dr. Baturk, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a fascinating discussion. Um, as always, I didn't expect anything less from you, having watched all your uh, Plug Life television episodes. I think it's Stop fantastic it, you, uh, thing that you're doing. Uh, <laughs> Um, and uh, keep up uh, keep up the good work there. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us on. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. Thank you so much to Dr McTurk for his time and knowledge. I think you'll agree that he certainly knows his stuff when it comes to batteries and renewables, and I really enjoyed our conversation. You can follow him on Twitter at 106Ewan, and his YouTube channel is Plug Life Television. If you want to contact me, please use the EV Musings Twitter account, MusingsEV, or I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to become an EV Musings patron. The link is in the show notes. If you want a quick reference book to read on your Kindle, I wrote a little something called So You've Gone Electric. It's available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. At the moment, it's free on Kindle Unlimited, or if you're in the Kindle Lending Library, please check it out. Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. Thanks as always to my co-founder Simon. You know, he's always looking for new places to take the electric skateboard. He's tried the local parks where he lives, converted train tracks in Hertfordshire and even the Olympic Park in London. But he's found a new place, Holland. He likes it for two reasons. One, because it's nice and flat. The other the windmills. Uh, and that has God knows how many miles of, of dirt tracks running between the wind turbines, which are perfect for uh, dog walking, mountain biking, all of that sort of thing. Thanks for listening.